The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by, well, one of my predecessors, Ferdinand Mount, who's also been political editor of The Spectator, has been the editor of the TLS, uh, headed Mrs Thatcher's policy unit at Downing Street, and is now the author of a new book called Big Caesars and Little Caesars, How They Rise and How They Fall, From Julius Caesar to Boris Johnson. Ferdy, hi. What is a big Caesar and what's a little Caesar and what's the difference between them? The difference is in the degree of their power mania and their ruthlessness. So the big Caesars are the great beasts of history and the little Caesars, as the name was first used of Chicago gangsters, are are the, well, what's Rudy called the tin pot dictators who operate at a lower level. But the uh, thesis of, of, of my book is that Although the consequences of the Big Caesars and the Little Caesars are vastly different, they tend to operate on much the same techniques. And so this book is running through a few of their, the tricks of their trade. The original Caesar didn't invent the concept of Caesarism, did he? It's one of the discoveries in this book. When did we start to think about Caesarism? And- well, quite early on, Julius Caesar, it was named after Julius's family name and his successor, Augustus took the title of Caesar, and so did their successors. But after a a hundred years or so, it was already established as a thing. And Marcus Aurelius, that wise old emperor, said, I must not Caesarify. So, I mean, it was already an idea as early as that. And now one of the central arguments of this book, one of the central sort of People on who you draw your sights is Boris Johnson. He seems to have kind of inspired it. And this is probably going to be the hardest sell for a number of our listeners, who many of whom will hold, regard him in kind of quite a, a favourable light in certain respects. Is it really fair to equate him, as, as you seem to implicitly, with a great chapter on the beer hall putsch, with a list of rogues up to and including Adolf Hitler? Well, I mean, and the same is true of Donald Trump, of whom a great number of people think favourably. And a great number of people still think very favorably of Boris. And if they are disillusioned, they just regard him as a cheerful, optimistic sort of politician who had a few personal flaws and a tendency to fib, uh, but um, wasn't as bad as all that. So in a quiet way, I'm not equating. I'm just saying there are things in common. And what I do wish to bring out is that Boris's reign in power wasn't just a rather chaotic romp. It contained some pretty rough and unpleasant actions. If you will remember, he purged his 21 most senior Tory MPs, got rid of them. He got rid of Six permanent secretaries, heads of civil servants' departments, including the secretary to the cabinet. He wouldn't allow his own chancellor, Sajid Javid, to have his own advisers. And Sajid quite rightly said, I'm not standing for this. And the more pliable Rishi Sunak 
took the job instead. And then you look at what he actually did. And we can't, as voters claim we can't, weren't warned, because most of it was in the 2019 Tory manifesto. And to that extent, he did what he promised. And there are some quite tough things in there. There's the restriction on demonstrations. Police now can stop a demonstration if they think it's too noisy. There are those fierce, the Borders Act, um, uh, very tough on illegal immigrants and on their and uh, treatment, which later led to the proposal to send them to Rwanda, which kind-hearted people thought was a bit far to go and not a very good place to end up. There was then the Judicial Review Act, which restricted the rights of British citizens to go to the courts saying they'd been ill-treated by government departments. There was the Elections Act, which now insists that everyone has to have ID to vote. Even Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg admitted quite candidly that this was a piece of gerrymandering to discourage the poor and ill-organized from voting. And it's very common in the United States where it has its name, voter suppression, VS, and in every state they're introducing laws to discourage the poor from voting. And there was also the Dissolution of Parliament Act, which gives the Prime Minister of the day the unfettered right to, to prorogue. You will remember that Boris is unique in recent British history in having been found guilty of illegal actions in trying to prorogue Parliament. And this too, uh, just to, I mean, your very reasonable point is why should we include nice, nice old Boris in this list? This is precisely what all the great Caesars of our history have tried. You remember Oliver Cromwell smashing up Parliament, saying, get out, this is no Parliament, I've had enough of you. This is a, a broken Parliament. No, I say broken Parliament, actually, that's a phrase, in the, oddly enough, in the 2019 Tory manifesto. And that wasn't the only time Cromwell, you remember he brought down the Speaker from his chair and grabbed the mace and all that stuff. But that wasn't the only time he did it. He dis dissolved Parliament five more times, beating Napoleon, who dissolved, smashed up his Parliament three times, and Louis Napoleon, who only needed to do it once, although Louis Napoleon did put the judges as well as the MPs into jug. So, I mean, this is all in a fine old tradition of smashing things up, and also a fine old tradition of rough language. Cromwell referred to that famous uh, document in our history as Magna Fata. He also referred to the petition of right as the petition of shite. Now, this seems to me in the final tradition, which culminates in Boris at a meeting of the cabinet at Chequers, dismissing Theresa May's uh, agreement with the European Union as like polishing a turd. So it's this rough language, this rough action, this disregard for the law. I don't think I would have heard a previous prime minister refer so contemptuously, as Boris does, to lefty lawyers. So I know it's a stretch, and I think a lot of readers may rebel against it. But I think if you look at the evidence, there is a tradition there. One of the interesting things to me, in the tradition you 
draw out because the book circles around, you know, roams across history, finding these Caesars, these sort of people who are either dictators or have dictatorial instincts. Quite a number of them, history has been much kinder to them than you want to be. I mean, one doesn't think, for instance, instantly, or maybe I'm too uneducated, but I wouldn't think it's near de Gaulle in this category. But you say he's right there. And even Cromwell, who, you know, we have a statue of him in Parliament. He has rather kind of favourable reputation. I mean, not in, in Ireland necessarily, but he's seen as quite an important and substantial figure in our history rather than a kind of thug, isn't he? Well, that's an absolutely brilliant example. You go across Parliament Square towards the Houses of Parliament. What's the first thing you see? This statue of Oliver Cromwell, warts and all, standing proud in front of you with the British lion under his feet and so on. And this was the man who smashed up Parliament again and again. And in his lifetime and for hundreds of years afterwards, he was regarded as a brutal humbug who deserved his fate of, uh, of being strung up after he died. And it took a terrific amount of work. And this is a point I think needs to be brought out. It needs a terrific amount of, of rewriting of history to make these figures into flawless heroes of our island race. And in the case of Cromwell, we know exactly who did it because Thomas Carlyle, who wrote a famous book on heroes and hero worship, said that what every nation needs is heroes, great men. Only great men can make a great nation. You don't want all these ridiculous parliaments with a fiddle-faddle of voting and ballots and all that. What you want is great men. And the greatest man man in our history was Cromwell, greater even than Napoleon. And he went on banging away at this, and his famous edition of the writings of Oliver Cromwell was on every nonconformist bookshelf throughout the 19th century. And by the end of the 19th century... Lord Rosebery, who liked dictators, he, he liked people who got the job done, proposed that Parliament should pay for a statue. And Parliament it seemed to be going quite well until the Irish MPs got wind of it and they brewed up a storm and said they were never going to vote for that. And the Scottish MPs, after all, Cromwell massacred almost as many Scots at Dunbar as he did Irish at Droida, rebelled to it. And so in the end, the Parliament wouldn't vote the money. And so Rosebery had to pay for it himself. It's sort of interesting. <laughs> yeah, but he, he, wasn't, he, was a, he was a fairly poor, hard-up Scottish peer, but he'd married a Rothschild, and his wife paid for this lovely statue. It's a terrific statue by Hamo Thornacroft. But it's only due to Carlyle's proselytising that his legend was reborn. And you could take in France de Gaulle, who did some pretty slimy things in order to get to the top. At the third or fourth, he tried to do two or three coups before the one that succeeded. And he had a wonderful bunch of Fierro worshippers, principally a man called Philippe Séguin, uh, who was the leader of the Gaullist party, and who wrote a life of Louis Napoleon, rehabilitating Louis Napoleon as a great man. Victor Hugo had called him Napoleon, Napoleon le Petit, and Séguin said, no, no, he's Napoleon the Great, and everyone started thinking Louis Napoleon was a pretty good thing. So it needs hero worshippers to create, the recreate the legend. And if you take Julius Caesar, go back to Julius Caesar, we were all brought up to read Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic Wars as being the last word in brilliant military history, marvellously lucid, clear, and above all, truthful, accurate, in spite of the fact that his companion, 
Asinius Pollio, who actually crossed the Rubicon with him, said actually he made a lot of it up. And, and mo only modern historians in the last 10 years or so have looked through the, uh, the commentaries that are slightly more critical eye and have realized that the casualty figures are completely incredible. And quite often he says, um, and that day, the famous quote from Shakespeare's play, that day we slew the Nervii, and he claims to have wiped out the, ner the tribe of the Nervii. And then <laughs> some slightly more eagle-eyed critics notice that the Nervii then resurface in numbers several chapters later, not as wiped out as all that. So anyway, Julius Caesar invented a lot. Napoleon lied hugely in his bulletins, so much so that the phrase to lie like a bulletin became a sort of proverbial saying in France. And of course, Donald Trump is the modern champion of invention. I think it's an interesting thing about Trump is that the, the 2020 march on the Capitol, the protest, we, the refusal to admit that he'd lost, wasn't the first time he'd done it. When Obama got in, was re-elected, Trump tweeted, this, we must stop this, he lost. The figures, it's all fraud. And that was 10 years earlier. And then he suddenly realized this is not going to look too well. So he erased all the tweets and then repeated them again in relation to himself eight years later. But so actually, you also remind us in that passage on Trump that his great buddy Roger Stone led a very miniature version of this sort of Brooks Brothers insurrection, which seems to have helped clinch Bush Jr. over Gore. Yes, that which was a very knife-edged thing. And uh, all these, these supporters of Trump's buddy, Roger Stone, dressed for some extraordinary reason in Brooks Brothers suits. I don't know why. I was supposed to identify each other or something. Stormed the counting house where they were counting the votes, managed to stop the vote getting counted, and as a result, Bush defeated Gore. So he had form, and that's what... I think one often underestimates is that people who make a habit of inventing things and trying to rig elections keep on going. And sometimes they lose, but sometimes they win. Yes, you, you talk about the hero worship as being necessary, at least to polish the myth. I mean, obviously, there's the contemporary ones who are the suck-ups and the you know press stooges and so on. But I mean, you know, Carlyle didn't have much prospect of getting a good job from Oliver Cromwell. What is it that attracts these, you know, years after the event hero worshippers, do you think? What is it that makes these figs into myth? I think it's it's a kind of romance, really. It's a simplifying of life and politics. It makes you think, if we just had a great... And this is, you know, Carlyle does say this. If we just had a great man, all our problems would be over. You wouldn't have to worry about a thing. And that is the sort of underlying, delightful dream, really. So it's, as you say, the immediate sycophants are, are out, for, out for a job or, or, out, or hope to hold on to their job if they've already got one. But the people in years afterwards and many, you know, many voters and so on do very much like this idea that you can simplify Things And that, too, is not a new discovery. Jacob Burkhart, the 19th century historian, talked of the terrible, simp the terrible simplifiers, phrase which was later used to apply to Stalin, Mussolini, the whole lot. But the odd thing is that Burkhart himself was a sucker. He said, you've got to have a great man every now and then to clear up 
clear it all up and make it simple. And the hatred of elections and the hatred of the possibility that one government might undo the actions of the previous government is one that is a very strong instinct. And a lot of philosophers like um, Hobbes and Hegel and so on hated the idea that one government might undo the actions of its predecessor. But of course, as we know, in real life, very often the new government does something new and then the, um, the old government, the government that's just been flung out, says, well, yes, perhaps that is the right way to go. And when they get back in, if they do get back in, they go along with it, just as uh, the Tory party didn't undo the, all the welfare state legislation of the Attlee government, and Blair didn't undo all the Thatcher trade union reforms. So we move from sort of one platform of general understanding where we all think, yes, perhaps we, we ought to do it like that, uh, to another. So you need the possibility of change, of debate, of argument. And that's what the Caesars don't like. Caesars don't like being answered back to. And answering back is, is, is a sort of lifeblood of politics, really. Is there a distinction you can see that kind of runs clearly through between those Caesars who come to power in a democracy and then seek either through a sort of auto golpe or, to, or simply through a series of reforms to consolidate their power to be more authoritarian and the ones who don't, who come to power by force or who start out in a, in a non-democratic situation? Yes, there is. I mean, it's a very interesting distinction that between the seizing power by force and then gradually consolidating absolute power when you're in power, but have come there quite legitimately. For example, Indira Gandhi was entirely legitimately elected, and then she introduced the emergency and locked a whole lot of people up and introduced censorship and all the rest of it. Well, she was a legitimate prime minister. And of course, Mussolini actually came to power legitimately, although he frightened the king with his march on Rome, which, of course, he didn't actually take part in himself, like Trump didn't take part in the march on the capital. You get your stooges to do that for you. But the king did invite Mussolini to form a government. And although he'd got only a handful of MPs, and then little by little over the next two or three years, he consolidated his power, changed the law, and eventually abolished elections. And Hitler tried the beer hall putsch, which I've got a sort of a, a, a sequence of chapters on coups that failed, just as sort of examples of how it doesn't always succeed. Um, and the beer hall putsch was an ignominious failure. But Hitler, I think, had already decided that that wasn't the way to do it. The way to do it was to do well enough in the elections for the president to invite you to form a government. And then you swiftly closed down everything that made the parliament a real parliament. And that's what he did in 1933. So it doesn't necessarily mean they're any nicer that they should come to power by legitimate means and then consolidate. It just means that they've learned a trick or two. Indira Gandhi strikes me as one of the most surprising and interesting chapters in the book because she's a woman and there aren't very many of those in, in here. I mean, how... The other sort of sequel to it 
is that she then kind of goes back into normal electoral politics after having essentially been a dictator. Yes. Isn't 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 that extraordinary? Totally extraordinary. And everything she did surprised people. Well, she surprised them in the first place because they only chose her to be the leader because she was Nehru's daughter. And they thought she was just a sort of ignorant girl. And she quickly got rid of the old sweats and, and became a real strong prime minister. But... Everyone was completely taken by surprise when she brought in the emergency, even even some of her closest collaborators. And then they were equally surprised when she suddenly said, after a year, 18 months, whatever it was, right, well, we've, we've done that, we'll, we'll have elections now. And they had elections, and she was trounced, she was chucked out. So we'd have thought again, that's the end of her. Not at all. The third surprise is that she gets elected a couple of years later and uh, goes on until she is cruelly assassinated. So, I mean, the whole story is full of complete surprises. Uh, what are the sort of golden threads that you pull out that, I mean, in the first place, because you, you, you do have some prescriptions for how to resist, but the commonalities that you find from Julius Caesar to the very present day in these dictators? Well, I think one of them is is the readiness to lie, to tell untruths. And that is why it is so important to check every statement, to resist every bending of the truth, whatever the situation is. And the next is to defend the law, uh, because sooner or later they are all driven in small ways or great to break the law and often to steal large sums of money. I mean, there's the very dramatic episode in the rise of Julius Caesar when he comes into the Senate and says, give me the key to the treasury because I need uh, to break it open to fight my war against Pompey. And there's a brave young um, uh, official whose job it is to defend the treasury and he speaks up and says, Caesar, I have no authority to do that. It's designed for other purposes, for wars against foreign enemies. And Caesar says, get out of my way, you stupid little man. There's no place for you when there's war going on. And I'm the one who gives orders around here. Again, there's very, very rough language. And in the end, he gets his way, breaks open the treasury and takes out a huge amount of money. This episode, you will be surprised to hear, does not figure in Caesar's account of of the civil wars. Indeed, you might wonder where he got his money from if you were just reading his own account. But that kind of brutal infringement of laws, which had been, in, in that case, had been in place for several hundred years, is a very typical marker and one that um, you will find repeated again and again. But telling fibs and bending the rules a bit do seem to be characteristics of Many democratic politicians, don't they? Is is there a hard line between that and the Caesarism? No, there isn't a hard line. You're quite right. We've all in our lifetimes, if you've as old as me, you've, you've seen some spectacular lies, the famous lie at, at Suez, which the people who told it, Selwyn Lloyd and Eden, never apologised for, were not ashamed of. And then, of course, the lie, or at least the implication of untruth in the um, uh, Blair claim that the um, evidence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq was, I can't remember what the words are, 
clear, definite and plentiful or something, when in fact he had been told by the, all the, um, the spies and spy masters, we've got no evidence at all, we simply don't know. So, and that again, I don't think Tony Blair or Alistair Campbell have apologised for that, at least not, not in my hearing. So yes, they do. It would be kind to say that they only do it when they are up against it, but I think that would be too charitable. But I, de- I think there is, if there, if there is a difference at all, it is between the habitual and instinctive, deliberately planned falsehoods, which are characteristic of, of Caesar's, and the, the, pan- the panicky lie, I mean, no more excusable for that, uh, told by democratic leaders. Is it especially in democracies that this particular Caesaristic quality of appealing to the will of the people comes out? I mean, you talk, talk a lot about some of these would-be Caesars, and Caesars have an absolutely kind of umbilical connection to a, a portion of the electorate that feel pissed off and... At the same time, they have contempt for this. This is their their kind of, you know, raison d'etre or their, their base of power is saying, I am channeling the will of the people. Yes, well, I, I mean, I don't think it's confined to leaders in, demo, in democratic uh, countries. Um, it is, but the, the nature of the appeal is always the same. The appeal to the left behind or the, or the dispossessed. I mean, a very good, which... Julius Caesar was very popular um, with the people he handed, he dealt out the cash to. But at the same time, you have to sort of compare that with would-be Caesars who didn't make it, like Catiline, who appealed to just the same dispossessed people in his uh, when he conspired to bring down the Roman state, got twenty or thirty thousand people in his army, a lot of rough fellows. Uh, down and out, drunks and so on, but a great number of people. And they stuck to him throughout, and he just was defeated in battle. So, yes, you appeal to the dispossessed, but also you appeal in situations of great chaos. And that, I think, is another sort of background when you look at uh, where the country has had years of civil war, as Rome had, as Franco, as Spain had in Franco's day, and Portugal had had 20, 30 years of total chaos, one sort of government after another, uh, and economy going sour, everything, and the general feeling that Portugal's great days are over, which is another great theme, is the nostalgia for a vanished past of greatness. And so they chose this completely obscure economics professor from the university, Salazar, and who just ruled very quietly with no flashy gestures, locked a lot of people up. It wasn't a nice regime, but the Portuguese were perfectly happy with it because it was better than what had gone before. And so it's not only an appeal to the dispossessed, it's, it's very much an appeal for calm and certainty after years of conflict, and, and that's a, a, a pattern which is repeated. Now, in resisting them, I mean, you mentioned the, the, the seeing off of Catiline, and that seems quite a good kind of locus classicus for it. What was it that, that helped 
Rome to see off the Catalinian conspiracy. I mean, I was interested, you, you know, Cicero didn't just have one, but four anti-Catalina orations. Why did it take four? What was the well, shape Well, he, he, uh, he, he had two Catalina orations against Catalina in the Senate, and then two out in the forum to the public, all abusing Catalina over and over again. But he had already done two-thirds of the job by getting advance warning of the conspiracy and so setting Catalan's men up with a, with a brilliant sting operation in which uh, he was able to show the Senate that the Catalan supporters were in league with, with Gaulish um, uh, uh, emissaries and, and so with foreign agents, as it were, in our terms. And he produced all this evidence in the Senate. So it was a brilliant piece of counter-espionage just as the defeat of the gunpowder plot was a brilliant piece of advance warning. Lord Salisbury had a letter, nobody quite knows where it came from, even this day, but the letter saying there's, they're going to blow up the house, there's going to be a great stir in Parliament, and um, i.e. there's going to be an explosion. And so when Guy Fawkes and his men were piling up a huge amount of gunpowder. I mean, it really would have blown it high, sky high. Salisbury's men were were ready for them. So uh, that is um, advance warning is one way. Another way, of course, is just simply resolution and doing your job, like those officials in Georgia and Arizona and so on, who simply refused to be browbeaten by Trump's men, Rudy Giuliani and the rest of them, into certifying that, that Trump had won. They just said, no, you didn't. Uh, you've lost by a lot. And here, here we've got the figures. And they just went. And as a result, most of them were chucked out in their states. I mean, they did, they suffered for their their honesty, um, as, as people who resist coups often, often do. Yes, a, a coup that you do bring up that seems to be slightly unlike the others is a Cato Street conspiracy. Because if I'm reading your account of this right, this great assassination plot, in fact, rather than being a failed attempt to launch a Caesar on the world, may have been a a means by which an existing Caesar tightened his grip. Yes, it was. It was was a put-up job uh, in every sense that the half, well, not half, but a lot of the conspirators were spies from the the Bow Street um, spy ops. And they said, um, they persuaded these conspirators uh, that if you go to Lord Harrowby's mansion on a particular evening, he's having all the cabinet to dinner and you can go up and blow up the house and cut off their heads. And of course, there was no such dinner Although they pretended there was, they laid out the plates and uncorked the bottles to give that a mirror. But the conspirators didn't even get to the house. They were all arrested at their headquarters in Cato Street, just off the Edgware Road. And that enabled not only to round them all up and execute them and suppress the, the widespread unrest that was running through the country, but justified the six acts which Lord Liverpool's government had just passed, which were all to do with things like um, forbidding protests and uh, locking people up and so on. I mean, not, I thought, not entirely unlike the the five acts that Boris Johnson brought in in April 22. There did Um, seem to be a a deliberate 
contrast going on there with the six acts and the five acts. Yes, well, well yes. I mean, they um, these uh, actually in neither case were the acts particularly effective, but they were political weapons to show we are the tough ones. We're we are going to put down uh, these revolutionaries and restore peace and quiet to your streets. And the other side, uh, Labour in modern terms, Whigs in the um, uh, in the nineteenth century, there are a bunch of softies who will let your mothers be murdered in their beds if, and you've got to trust to us. So these are largely exercises in in political propaganda rather than serious bits of legislation. You say, I mean, I, I think you quote the very line that you know the good men do is buried with them. That the, sorry, the good men, evil men do lives on. The good is often, ah, Christ, I've forgotten the quote. So often terrified. What is it? The good men do is often terrified with their bones. Their bones. Sorry. Yes, yes. You say that when we've seen off these dictatorships, as we often seem to, yeah, that isn't actually the end of them. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, I mean the 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 damage does live on very often and it's sometimes in very obvious ways that uh, there are broken alliances or people's lost a lot of money or uh, there are a lot of people whose lives have been broken by torture or imprisonment and so on. Uh, Those are the sort of direct and obvious consequences but there is often a longer consequences which is that the general feeling gets around that what has happened before can happen again. And that if you take India, although Indira Gandhi's emergency was short-lived, it set the example to the nationalists' parties in India, who hadn't been having much of a look-in up till that minute, to realise that the Indian public might be ready for quite tough measures, uh, that the North authoritarian government might actually prosper, because the emergency was pretty popular generally. Um, there was very little protest. It was popular around the country, not so much in Delhi. There were very few protests. Compared with the protests against British rule earlier, it was minimal. And um, so the nationalists um, said, hmm, we can learn from this. And so I think a lot of Indians would say that the great success of Narendra Modi in having, in staying in power so long with a strongly authoritarian government is that he has learnt from Mrs. Gandhi, and although they were, were would have been political opponents, he's careful never never to rubbish her, because he sees, as he thinks, that that's the way to keep a stronghold on power um, in the subcontinent, and so far he hasn't been proved wrong. It is difficult, as you concede, when we're talking about the romance of the great man, you know, the Carlylean joy of this sort of vigorous, exciting figure of history. In a democracy, it's quite hard, isn't it, to make tedious notions like parliamentary privilege and due process, you know, they, they're hard to wave around on a flag. They're hard to be exciting. Is it, is it sort of embedded in our system that we are going to find attractive chances more appealing with quick fixes. Well, I think it's always a risk. But, you know, the strangest things can be made romantic. You will recall that when Charles I came with armed men like Cromwell to try and arrest the five members in, 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 on the floor of the House of Commons 
and he was beautifully seen off by Mr. Speaker Lentall, who said, I'm afraid I can't talk to you because I have neither eyes to hear, uh, eyes to see or nor ears to hear, except as I'm directed by members of this house. So I can't, so although I bow to you as my king, I can't tell you where these five members are. And they had, in fact, fled down the river to the city where they were given sanctuary. Anyway, Charles I discovered this and set off down to the city. The, the, the five members had gone by water, and he went uh, by land down the Strand. And as he went, he was besieged by protesters shouting, privileges of parliament, privileges of parliament, <laughs> which, as you can see when I just said it just now, is incredibly difficult. It, off the tongue, <laughs> it really doesn't trip off the tongue. And yet it had appealed, the idea that Parliament was privileged to do its own thing, to have its own discussions without interference, had caught the imagination of the British public then. And so I find it rather piquant that when Boris Johnson finally leaves the House of Commons, it is as a result of a judgment of the Commons Privileges Committee, which you might think as a bunch of old stuffed shirts observing antiquated rituals, but actually it's preserving something very precious. Well, to return finally to Boris Johnson, you, I mean, you're quite unequivocal about him here. You say he was thrown out because, let us use his own demotic here, he was a shocker, a rotter, a stinker. And two pages later, I think you say that he is... Uh, the whole interminable farce has been largely, if not wholly, of Boris Johnson's own making. It is the ripest example of bad governance in Britain since the war. Do you find yourself with anything nice to say about him? Yes, I think he's, uh, he is uh, coming to power with the most brilliant achievement. He had practically no allies at all, except in the right-wing press. He had no friends in Parliament because he'd never taken any interest, although he's been a member of it. He overall for about 20 years. He'd never taken any interest and joined in any parliamentary activities, committees, and so on. He did it all himself, and it was, a, was an amazing achievement. And that um, can't be denied. And if you still believe, as nearly half the country, slightly less now, uh, believes that it was a good idea to leave the European Union, he brought that about. But I think anyone who isn't obsessed about this whole subject, as I probably am, I think would fair-mindedly conclude that we didn't get out in the best way and that the consequences for our trade, for our care homes, for, uh, for um, agriculture, for every part of, of our, um, for science and the arts, for every part of our society, the consequences of the way we left the EU are with us still, and we'll be picking up the pieces for a long time. And I don't think I'm being an obsessive uh, Johnson hater when I say, I think that was his doing. It could have been done much more thoughtfully and carefully with proper attention to the consequences in all these various different sectors, and we could have made a much better job of it. And his short attention span, his love of the quick slogan, and his refusal to listen to thoughtful advice, which, as I've said, you know, the way he got rid of all these people, uh, I think does have very serious consequences. 
So I think you're perfectly at liberty to love him still or to love Donald Trump still, but I think you have soberly to recognize that the damage they did will be with us a long time. Fair enough, man. Thank you very much. Hail Caesar. Thank you.